from the moment of our Lord's ascension into heaven, as recounted for us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Christians have expected the Lord's bodily and imminent return. Both Jesus and the apostles had a fair bit to say about Christ's return, as well as those signs which would precede the end. So, from the dawn of the church until now, some 2,000 years removed from our Lord's life and ministry, Christians have expected the Lord to return. What are the signs of the end? How are we to understand them? And what remains to be fulfilled before the Lord does return? There are also a number of common expectations people have about the Lord's return, but really are not signs of the end at all. I'm thinking of the rapture, the seven-year tribulation, a millennial age, and so on. So we'll discuss these expectations, which are not really biblical signs of the end, as we go along. Frankly, it's hard to discuss the signs of the end in this day and age, because since the days of the birth of the nation of Israel in 1948, the Bible prophecy pundit industry has been doing its best to connect current events to biblical prophecy, especially those events surrounding the nation of Israel. And this has colored Christian expectation in many harmful ways because verses are lifted from their context and apply to virtually any event involving the Jewish state without regard for what Scripture actually teaches about the end. Granted, a few of these predictions have come to pass, but these are more of a broken clock is right twice a day variety. So let's step back from the prognosticators and the Bible prophecy industry and take a fresh look at biblical teaching regarding the signs of the end. I think this is an important and a valuable exercise. I'm Kim Riddlebarger, and this is episode 5 in our series, The Future. In this episode, we'll discuss the signs of the end and consider what remains to be fulfilled before our Lord returns. What must happen before Jesus comes back? And what might happen before the Lord's return? And what do I think the future holds for Christ's church? What might we face in the days ahead? So stay tuned for what I hope will be a very interesting discussion. Well, now that we have the proper categories in place, the two ages, the kingdom of God, and the two major covenants, we are in a position to discuss the signs of the end in the right context. And that, as I mentioned, is apart from the prophecy pundit industry that thrives on tying out-of-context current events to the signs of the end. If we avoid the prophecy punditeers, this will help prevent us from making predictions which do not come to pass, and then shamelessly moving on to make new predictions as though we had never even made the prior predictions. Any discussion of the science of the end ought to be conducted in light of the biblical backdrop 
which we've labored so hard to establish in the first four episodes in this series. In what follows, we'll see that there are only several specific predictions regarding the future in the New Testament, the bodily return of Jesus Christ on the last day being the critical one, and then there are also several signs of the end about which Reformed millenarians disagree among themselves, the role and place of Israel in the end times being one of them. But there are a number of things which many Christians expect to come to pass, like the rapture, like a seven-year tribulation period, but which are not part of biblical expectation. So we'll talk about these things too. Well, with four weeks of build-up, let's get right down to it. Let's talk about the signs of the end in general. There are three categories of signs of the end in the New Testament. One, there are those signs which are specific to the apostolic age. Two, there are those signs which characterize the entire inner advental age, the birth pains. And three, there are those signs which herald the end. The Lord is about to come back. Well, let's take up the first group of signs, and there are four of them, signs which are specific to the apostolic age. These are the signs to be witnessed by the disciples, as Jesus puts it in Matthew twenty four twenty three. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So what are all these things that must take place? First, we have the warning of false prophets and the arrest and persecution of the disciples of the twelve. In Matthew 24, verses 9 to 14, the famous Olivet Discourse passage, where Jesus takes his disciples up on the Mount of Olives the night before his arrest and betrayal and explains to them the future course of the temple and for Israel and so on, he picks up in verse 14 by telling the disciples, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then... Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so there's this passage from Matthew 24, but also the parallels in Mark chapter 13, specifically verses 9 through 13, and Luke 21, specifically verses 12 through 19. So first one is, false prophets, and the arrest and persecution of the disciples. The second is a very specific prediction made by Jesus, and that's the Roman siege of Jerusalem, what Luke speaks of as the time of the Gentiles. That's something we'll return to a bit later. In Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44, we read this, And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you... Even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone on another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So the reference to the city being surrounded is obviously a reference to 70 AD when the Romans surrounded Jerusalem and built siege towers so they could shoot down into the city and anybody that moved. And we know from Josephus it's one of the most horrible times in the history of Jerusalem. In fact, as Jesus will go on to say, this will be the worst thing Israel will ever experience and the chief of the covenant curses the destruction of the city and the temple. 
Luke then gets very specific in Luke 21, verse 24, when he says and warns the inhabitants of Jerusalem will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. If you've seen the Arch of Titus in the city of Rome with the menorah and all the gold implements being taken back to Rome out of Jerusalem, Jesus goes on to say, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So we have a time marker that speaks directly to the events in the life of the apostles, that is the destruction of Jerusalem, which commences the time of the Gentiles. And Paul will have something to say about that later. A third thing is the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple in AD 70. We've just mentioned that. In the opening of the Olivet Discourse passage in Matthew 24, the first two verses, we read that Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be one stone here upon another that will not be thrown down. And we know from history that the Roman army, when sacking the temple, set fire to some of the tapestries inside. The heat, like a pizza oven, melted all the gold and the silver of the temple utensils. That melts down, runs in the drainage system. So to retrieve all these precious metals, the Roman soldiers pulled the temple apart block by block. And that prophecy is very literally fulfilled in AD 70. Then in Matthew 25, verses 15 to 22, Jesus warns the disciples of the following. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, a reference to Daniel 9, 24 to 27, when you see him standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So when you see the city surrounded and the abomination of desolation, get out of Dodge now. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For there will be a great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No one never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be short. You know that Christians saw this. They'd heard Jesus' warning. They saw the siege walls going up. They got out of Dodge. And Jesus has told them, you pray that this is in good weather and, and at an opportune time because this is going to be a terrible period. And this is discussed not only in Matthew 24, 15 to 22, but also in Mark 13, 1 through 2, and then the end of the chapter where the Olivet Discourse version in Mark, and also in Luke 21, a passage we've already read. A fourth thing that will happen in the lifetime of the apostles is the desolation and diaspora of Jerusalem. In Matthew 23, verses 37 to 38, we hear these words from our Lord. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, and stones those who were sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So here we have the meeting out of the covenant curse. As Adam was expelled from Eden, as Israel had been expelled from Canaan, so too Israel is once again evicted from the land of promise, in AD 70, and this time it meant 
being scattered to the ends of the earth. The next group of signs are those which characterize the entire interadvental period. These are birth pains of the age to come, and there's seven of them. They overlap a bit, but there are seven signs that we ought to consider. The first is the presence of false Christs. According to Matthew 24, verses 3 to 5, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, i.e. the destruction of the temple, and what will be the sign of your coming in the close of the age? The disciples assumed that the destruction of the temple meant the end of Israel, the end of the age. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So we shouldn't be surprised then that false Christs appear from the very beginning of the church. John will have something to say about that when he speaks of Antichrist. We'll touch on that momentarily. So the first of the signs that characterize the entire inadvertent age, these birth pains, are the presence of false Christs. Second, wars and rumors of wars from Matthew 24, 3 to 8, parallel to Mark 13 and Luke 21. Jesus says, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So there are going to be wars and rumors of wars throughout the course of the period of time between Christ ascends into heaven and the time Christ returns. The same is true of the third sign, earthquakes and famine, from the same passage. There will be natural disasters and cataclysmic loss of human life due to famine and plague and so on throughout the course of the interadvental period. These are, these are birth pains of the end. A fourth sign was related to the first one, false teachers and false doctrine. Paul tells Timothy, But understand this, that in the last days, and the last days are not the time immediately before the end, but the last days are that entire period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And we discuss this in great detail in Season 2 of the Blessed Hope Podcast, where we tackle Paul's Thessalonian letters. So if you're interested in time marker language, well, check out that series. But understand this, that in the last days will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. So we're warned that false teachers and false doctrine will plague the church until Christ returns. And that relates to the fifth sign which characterizes the inner Adventist age, and that is the spirit of Antichrist present in the churches. And that was already occurring in the first century, which is clear from John's warnings here. 1 John 2, 18-19. Children, it is the last hour. So again, the time markers are that we've entered into the final period of human history with Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, and then Pentecost. It's the last hour. As you've heard, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists, plural, have come. So, Antichrist isn't even a single person, according to John. It's, it's a heresy. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. That's the key. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out 
that it might become plain that they're not of us. So you get the language from Jesus warning the disciples and then warning the church and Paul warning and now John that they're going to be people who come from the church, are heretics, and fall away. Verse 22 of John chapter 2. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? So there we get our definition of who Antichrist is. John says this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So you get Arianism, you get all these false notions regarding the deity of Christ, his relationship to the Father and the Holy Spirit. All those anti-Trinitarian doctrines are the Antichrist, John says. 1 John 4, 2-3 By this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you've heard was coming and is now in the world already. So this spirit of Antichrist is again the denial that Jesus is from God, a denial of the Incarnation, a denial of the saving work of the person and work of Christ. Now, how does this Antichrist relate to the book of Revelation, the beast, the dragon, the false prophet? Well, we'll talk about that in a follow-up episode to come, and we discuss this at length in our Thessalonian series. Six. Speaking of things we've discussed at length in the Thessalonian series is Paul's mysterious restrainer. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3-8, through 8, we read this. Paul's instructions to the Thessalonians who are rattled because somebody's told them that the Lord's already come, and of course it hasn't. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. So the birth pains continue until the rebellion comes, and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, which I contend is the church, proclaiming himself to be God. Do not remember when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what's restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. So what is this restrainer? Well, I take it to be the preaching of the gospel that restrains false teaching. Light exposes the darkness of error. And then in the providence of God, there have been a lot of these wannabe men of sin, wannabe antichrists who've come through the course of history, but have been prevented from doing so, so that, Paul says, he may be revealed in his time. But the mystery of lawlessness is already at work in the mid-50s of the first century when Paul writes that letter. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's taken out of the way. So at some point, The restraint lifts, it ceases, and then as Paul says in verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So when this final end times man of sin, this antichrist figure is revealed at the end of time, it will be unto destruction. When he appears, Christ will come and destroy him. Then a seventh sign that characterizes the entire interadvental period is the persecution of believers. Again, Paul warns Timothy, and Paul's about to die in in Rome, and he's writing his last letters to his young pastor friend in Ephesus, Timothy. He warns Timothy in his second letter, chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, 
and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on to remind Timothy that all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, and for training in righteousness. It's made perfectly clear to the church, you're going to be persecuted because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Then there are four signs that herald the end of the age. These are signs that tell us the end is near. The first of these is that the gospel must be preached to the ends of the earth before Christ returns. Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So the missionary enterprise of the church taking the gospel to the ends of the earth has to be completed before Christ comes back. But when it is, he does. And so I am of the opinion that when the last elect believer comes to faith in Jesus Christ, then the Lord returns. Of course, we are not going to to know who that last person is, but the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. It will triumph. It will conquer. And when the final believer comes to faith in Jesus, the end will come. Two, the second sign which heralds the end is the salvation of all Israel. This is a more controversial point, and I'll take it up in our follow-up episode next time. In Romans eleven twenty-five through 26 Paul tells us, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. There's a huge division of opinion within the Reformed camp on this, but I take, based on Romans 10 and 11, Paul to be saying that in the final days, there will be a huge conversion of ethnic Jews to faith in Jesus Christ. They will join Christ's church. And as a result of that, Israel will be saved. And I take that opinion because I think in Romans eleven twenty six, Paul is referring back to his distinction made in Romans 9, 6, between all Israel and not all Israel. So we'll talk about that next time. So put a place marker there and we'll come back to that. But I believe that is a sign of the end, that when we see huge numbers of Jews coming to faith in Jesus Christ, look up, your redemption draws near. As we've seen, a third sign is a time of great apostasy connected to the appearance of the man of sin. This is the final eschatological enemy of the church. I do believe in a final antichrist. I think John's antichrists who were present from the beginning culminate in an antichrist at the time of the end. And as Paul puts it in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3 and following, For that day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So there will be an antichrist and an apostasy. And this antichrist, this man of sin, this man of destruction, opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. In other words, he attacks the Christian faith and God's people. And he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Well, for a whole bunch of reasons I argue in the Thessalonians series, this is the church. This is not the temple in Jerusalem. But this person is the supreme blasphemer, shaking his fist in God's face and claiming divine rights and prerogatives for himself. That has to happen before Christ comes back. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 10, we have a remarkable parallel to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, when John in Revelation speaks of the thousand years coming to an end. And I take the thousand years to be 
a contemporary present period of time, the entire inner advental period, I take that to be the thousand years, which means the millennium is not something future. We're in it already, this thousand year period, this time of the great tribulation. And at the end of that, Satan will be released from his abyss, from the prison, and will come out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them for battle, their numbers like the sand on the sea. And they marched over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, that's the church, and the beloved city, the new Jerusalem, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. So there's a remarkable parallel here between John and Paul. There's a period of time during which Satan is bound, or which Paul speaks of as a restrainer, being let loose to deceive the nations at the time of the end in Revelation, which fits with Paul's great apostasy in 2 Thessalonians 2, and it ends with the second coming of Christ. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire, where the beast and the false prophet were. So the good news here, if you take nothing else from this, is that Jesus wins in the end and, and Satan's thrown in the lake of fire. So judgment occurs at the end of the millennial age, which is this current age. So this is why we've been arguing for the notion that when Christ returns, It'll be to raise the dead, judge the world, and make all things new. And there is no future millennial kingdom, either pre- or post-millenarian. As I mentioned then, there is also a fourth sign that tells us the coming of the Lord is near. And that is found in Revelation chapter 18. And that is the destruction of Babylon the Great. There are a number of references in Babylon found in the New Testament, surprisingly. In Matthew 1, verses 11 to 12 and 17. The city appears in the genealogy of Jesus. And that's Matthew's way of emphasizing the exile theme that we find so prominent in the opening chapters of his gospel. In 1 Peter 5.3, the city's mentioned again, and there it's almost certainly a reference to Rome. Uh, we know Peter was Mark's associate, and Mark's gospel was written in the city of Rome about that time. And just as Babylon oppressed the Jewish exiles, so too Rome was persecuting the Christians living in the city. We know that. And we know that both Paul and Peter were martyred in the city of Rome under the bloody hands of Nero. Throughout the latter chapters of the book of Revelation, Revelation 14, 8, 16, 19, 17, 5, 18, 2, 10, and 21, the city of Babylon is obviously symbolic of first century Rome. It's pictured there as the notorious prostitute who sits on many waters She's arrayed like a queen, sitting on a scarlet beast with seven heads and ten horns. She's drunk with the blood of saints. On her forehead's written, Babylon the Great, Mother of Harlots and of the Earth's Abominations, chapter 17, the first part. An angel helped to interpret the apocalyptic symbolism for John in Revelation 17. So it's symbolism here. The many waters point to nations and people. The seven heads or the seven mountains, which seem to me to be connected to the seven hills of Rome, it's rather obvious. Seven times Babylon's called the great city and is described as a dreadfully immoral place of wealth and commerce, and it rules over the kings of the earth, especially persecuting the saints of God. And so the wickedness personified in Babylon clearly symbolizes the historic manifestation of iniquity in first century Rome. And in Revelation 18, then, we come to the final end of the picture, 
Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. And so God's judgment is going to come upon the city. It'll be severe. And according to verse 6 of chapter 18, we'll repay her double for her deeds. The main reason for her destruction is spelled out in chapter 19, verse 2. That's her immorality and her persecution of the saints. And the kings and the merchants of the earth are going to mourn her demise, according to Revelation 18, 9 through 19. But the pronouncement is made in order the saints might rejoice and worship God. They see the city of man collapse in utter destruction. Those who built it turn on it and burn it down. We see the city of man will never outlast the city of God. And so the saints rejoice. Babylon, then, is first century Rome. I'm convinced of that. But it epitomizes the city of man across time. That is, throughout the entire inter-advental period. Yes, John's speaking of Rome, but Rome becomes a picture of all those God-hating cities of man that appear throughout the course of the inter-advental age. Whether it be the city of Nebuchadnezzar and the destruction of, of the southern kingdom of Judah, or Caesar, who destroyed the city in AD 70, Titus. These are historical symbols of the various cities of man that rise up and threaten the church throughout the course of the Advental Age. A great and recent illustration, this is Hitler. Hitler's thousand-year Reich lasted how long? These cities of men arise, challenge everything about society, the kingdom of God, and so on, and they lose every time. But at the time of the end, it'll appear to win, and Christ will come back and rescue us from that horrible period of time. Well, that brings us to some reflection on these signs of the end. And the first thing that we have to tackle is this weird tension between the imminence of Christ's return, that it can happen suddenly, but it's delayed and has signs preceding. How do we handle that? Well, this is a characteristic of New Testament eschatology, as we've seen. This is the tension between the already, things that God has already accomplished in the personal work of his son Jesus, and the not yet, how those things Christ has already accomplished will be consummated and fulfilled on the day of his return. It's the same with the kingdom of God, which is present but not yet consummated. It's the same with the covenant blessings and curses. This is all coming to an end. So there's a tension between what we've received in Christ now and what will be finally consummated at the time of the end. But Jesus is pretty clear here in Matthew 24, verse 32. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So, signs are going to precede the end. This is what Jesus taught us. We should expect them. And he's given us a pretty decent catalog of what these signs will be and what we ought to be looking for. Yet in the midst of that, the Lord can return suddenly to our great surprise. Matthew 24, verses 37 through 44. For as it was in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Kind of a reverse rapture. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house be broken into. Therefore 
you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. So this tension then between signs preceding the end and the suddenness of the Lord's return is obviously intentional, and it does two things. It prevents date setting, because no one knows the day or the hour. Jesus is very clear in Matthew 24, verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And in that warning that Christ can come any time, we have the second reason, nobody can set a date or a time, but the second reason is this prevents idleness. Jesus commands us, we must watch. That tension between these two things is clearly part of the New Testament's eschatology. One thing we need to say here is this complex of events that is associated with the end can come to pass very quickly. Birth pains can lead to the delivery of a baby very, very quickly. Sometimes they go on forever. Sometimes they come really quickly. If you've been present at the birth of a child, you know this is like a cyclical thing that the cycle gets so intense toward the end, you can't tell if this is a pain or if this is it. And these signs culminate in a final apostasy, the rise of an Antichrist figure, and I add to that the conversion of the Jews, and that can all come to pass pretty rapidly in months, not necessarily years or decades. I have quoted this several times already, but it's so true. Gerhardus Voss is correct. The best interpreter of some of these events is their fulfillment. What Voss is getting at is that God's people will know it when we see it. When it comes to pass, we will know this is the end. And it will be so clear there will be no need to have prophecy conferences or speculate because unless the Lord returns, it's over for us. Well, let's take a deep breath, step back, and then ask the next series of questions. What about the future? What does the Bible predict for the course of this age? Well, there are three signs of those signs we've mentioned that are already fulfilled. That is the events associated with the founding of the church and the persecution of the apostles and the earliest Christians. That's fulfilled. The destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, and the diaspora in AD 70. That's fulfilled. The continuing spread of Christianity to the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8 But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And then the parable of the mustard seed in Matthew thirteen thirty one, Jesus put a parable for them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of seeds. But when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that all the birds of the air come and make their nest in its branches. Well, that continuing spread of Christianity has been ongoing since the apostolic age, and we don't know when the last elect believer will come to faith in Christ, but that is currently ongoing. So it was fulfilled in the lifetime of the apostles and continues on into the present. And that brings us to a second group. What about the signs that characterize the entire interadvental period? Well, that's ongoing, because there will be wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, natural disasters, false teachers, heresy, persecution. All of that will continue until the Lord's return, and it will, in my humble opinion, get worse in the days immediately before the Lord's return. 
The Bible lays out a general pattern of birth pains, which occur throughout the entire interadvental age, but which do not predict specific wars or earthquakes. The Bible doesn't tell us that on such and such a date the San Andreas Fault is going to move, or that this fault is going to move, or that this tsunami is going to hit here, or this great storm hit there. It doesn't tell us specifics, but it tells us you're going to see earthquakes and storms and then wars and famine until Christ comes back. Those things are birth pains. They're not signs that the Lord isn't coming. They're signs that he is. So we don't take those in the sense that of despair. Gee, the Lord seems to be losing control of his creation. Rather, he's told us these things are going to happen and will culminate with his return on the last day. So the Bible explains current events in a big picture sense, but current events can't be used to interpret the scripture. We can't find an earthquake someplace and look for a verse that mentions the same geographic locale and say, see, this is a film of that. We just can't operate that way. Then there are three signs that tell us the end is near. The spread of the gospel and the ends of the earth is a condition of the end. And that's the salvation of God's elect. It's ongoing. Its fulfillment is unknown. Secondly, the conversion of Israel and the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and then Israel will be saved, is the way I would read that passage. So the conversion of Israel is not yet, and it's a harbinger of the end. And if I were to see huge numbers of Jews start to become interested in Christianity and converting to faith in Jesus Christ and joining his church, I would say the end is at hand, that that's a main sign that the end is coming. And then third, the one we don't want to talk about, is the great apostasy within the church and the appearance of the man of sin, this Antichrist figure. These events are both tied to the release of Satan from the abyss, the restrainer ceasing to restrain, says Paul, and the nations will be deceived that we're going to have a worldwide end times apostasy, a revolt against Christ's rule and his church, and this is, of course, not yet fulfilled, and this tells us that in the final days, things will get really bad. And unless the Lord returns, it is the end for us and for Christ's people if we still be alive at that time. So, so that sign obviously is not yet fulfilled and awaits to be fulfilled. Those are the signs given us in Scripture. These are the signs the Bible sets out. They're guarantees of the Lord's return, but they don't give us the details that so many of the prophecy pundits crave. The promises are not specific, they are general. And we'll talk more about that uh, as we wrap up down the road. Well, what about unrealized eschatology? These are common eschatological expectations which have no biblical support. The first of these is the expectation of a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And that became fertile soil for all kinds of speculation. I grew up hearing about the red heifer being ready for animal sacrifice. I grew up hearing that the stones to rebuild the temple were already being cut in a quarry in Indiana. I've heard all that stuff from the time I was a young whippersnapper. But the earthly temple and its forerunner, the tabernacle, are copies of the heavenly archetype, according to Hebrews 9-10. to Biblical history flows from type to anti-type, not the other way around. We don't go from reality back to the types in the shadows. Jesus declares himself to be the true temple of God. Matthew chapter 12, verses 6 and following. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. 
And then in Matthew 26, verse 61, we read, this man, Jesus is being accused, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And then we have the remarkable language in John chapter 2, 19 to 22, where Jesus answered this crowd saying, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. He's in Jerusalem. The Jews then said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. In other words, they understood that Jesus had been speaking about the fact that his body is the true temple of God. And that's why Paul can speak of the church as the temple of God in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 to 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So, in terms of the New Testament's ecclesiology, the church, the body of Christ, is the temple in which the Spirit indwells, and we're the living stones which compose that temple. So, we're not looking for an earthly temple to be rebuilt. Why? Why would we want that? Because if the temple were rebuilt in Jerusalem, any sacrifices conducted in it would be utterly blasphemous. We read in Matthew 27, verses 50 to 51, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. And for parallels, look at Galatians 5, 4 and Hebrews 10, 1 to 4. A rebuilt temple during the millennium is a return to type and shadow, and a reinstitution of these things is said to pass away with the coming of Christ. There is no need to have a temple again with the coming of Christ. Hebrews 8.13 Jesus made the old covenant obsolete. Hebrews 9.11-14 Christ as a high priest offers the final sacrifice. Temple worship would be blasphemous. Then there's yet another sign that people expect that just isn't taught anywhere in Scripture, and that's a seven-year tribulation period with a peace treaty with Israel. Now, the passage upon which dispensationalists base this theory is Daniel 9, 24-27, the prophecy of the 70 weeks. I've written a lot on that on the blog. There are a couple of sermons preached at Christ Reformed on this passage. There's a, a written essay and there's discussion in my Amillennialism 101 class on this. So if you'd like more information, be sure to check that out, because I'm just going to pass by pretty quickly here. The seventh week of Daniel is fulfilled by Christ's active and passive obedience. It's a Messianic prophecy. There's no reference anywhere in that text to the Antichrist making a peace treaty with Israel. Rather, what we have in Daniel 9.27 is a reference to the coming Messiah, confirming his covenant with the many that is his people for one week. So it it teaches that this is the Christ, not the Antichrist. You couldn't get that one more wrong, could you? Then the book of Revelation speaks of the second half of that 70th week by referring many times to languages confuse people. Three and a half years, a time, times, and half a times, 1,260 days. John sees that last part of the 70th week of Daniel as the entire interadvental period. He's doing the very thing dispensationalists say can't be done. He is spiritualizing a prophecy in light of the person work of Christ. 
So unless we look at how the New Testament interprets a passage like Daniel 9, we're going to get it wrong, as dispensationalists unintentionally do. To make matters worse, a seven-year tribulation period is never affirmed anywhere in the New Testament. Rather, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 is spoken of as a time of great tribulation, Matthew 24, 21. Matthew, later in that section, speaks of this is the entire inner advental age. He says you'll have tribulation until the end. John 16, 33, John tells us that you'll have tribulation in the world using the same word. In Acts 14, 22, we're told that we enter the kingdom of God through tribulation, and that's echoed in Romans 8, 35 and Revelation 1, 9. A great tribulation is mentioned in Revelation 7.14, but the reference there is to the entire inner advental period, the time which martyrs take their place before the throne of God. And that's, of course, what's being recapitulated in Revelation chapter 20. We have these people coming out of this age and appearing before the throne in heaven. This has nothing to do with an earthly scene. Revelation 20 is a heavenly scene until the last four verses, 7 to 10. The New Testament then speaks of the last days as that time which began with Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, Acts 2.17, Hebrews 1.2, Revelation 1.3, the last days being a reference to the final period in human history. It's the entire inner advental age. It is not a seven-year period before the return of Christ in judgment. Our dispensational friends have that one wrong. The next sign is a 1,000-year earthly millennium, either pre- or post-millennial. In light of the two ages and the shift from time to eternity, in light of the fact the kingdom of God is present but then consummate at Christ's return, in light of the realization of the covenant blessing-curse principle when Christ returns, there is no room or place for any millennial age pre- or post. There is no utopian golden age for the church, in terms of the Christianizing of the nations in a political, cultural, and economic sense, preceding the second coming of Christ, foretold anywhere in the New Testament. Sorry to my postmillennial friends, there is no New Testament postmillennial expectation, period. Key Old Testament passages that are deduced by postmillenarians to speak of a latter-day glory of the church, Psalm 2, Isaiah 2, and so on, those are fulfilled in Christ's messianic mission. That's the restoration of Israel, the Messianic age. Or, passages like the cosmic renewal from Isaiah 65, 17 to 28. Well, John in Revelation chapter 21 cites that as fulfilled by a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth. So the New Testament tells us how these Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled. And if you want more information on that, I, I have a, a lengthy discussion of Isaiah 65, for example, at the Riddle Blog. So, so check that out under the Amillennialism uh, heading. Now, prophecies in the New Testament regarding the spread of the kingdom are never tied to cultural transformation. And there are lots of prophecies in the New Testament that speak of the triumph of the kingdom of God, the parable of the mustard seed, which we just read. But those prophecies speak of a victorious spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. That is, God is going to save his people, a multitude so vast they can't be counted, a glorious victory over unbelief, but those same prophecies are never tied to a cultural age of economic and political prosperity. Babylon the Great, as depicted in Revelation 17 and 18, is never said to be transformed into the city of God, 
which comes down out of heaven in Revelation chapters 20 and 21. Christ's second coming is the key eschatological event in the New Testament. That event brings about the final consummation of all things. This removes any exegetical basis whatsoever for an earthly millennial kingdom after Christ returns. This drives a stake in the heart of premillennialism as well. Christ's return is connected to the resurrection of believer and unbeliever. We have these great passages in the Old Testament of a general resurrection, Daniel 12, 1-4, Isaiah 25, 6-9, when the prophet sees the veil of death, the shroud of death removed, the resurrection. Paul addresses this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 14-17. Again, in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-9, we cover that in season 2 of the Blessed Hope. In 1 Corinthians 15, 50-54. So, Christ's return is to raise the dead, all of the dead. Second of all, we're told that Christ returns tied to the final judgment in Revelation 20, 11-15, and in Matthew 25, verses 31-46. to Premillennialism then tells us, no, no, Christ comes back, establishes the millennial kingdom, and then judgment comes a thousand years later. But if you're premillennial, you usually claim you're premillennial because you read the Bible literally, but then how can you insert a gap between the time Christ returns a thousand years later comes the judgment? Your own hermeneutics should prevent you from doing things like that. So if you're going to be premillennial, you have to live with that tension between, I'm going to read the Bible literally, except when it comes to this particular point. It doesn't work that way. Third, Christ's return is tied to the creation of a new heaven and new earth. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 15 is very clear. When Christ returns, the elements burn up with a roar. We have a new heaven, a new earth, the home of righteousness. That means there is no halfway consummation taught anywhere in the New Testament. All are said to be judged and raised at Christ's return. When Matthew recounts Jesus explaining the parable of the weeds in Matthew 13, 36-43, judgment comes when Christ returns. Furthermore, according to Luke 20, 27-38, which we've discussed at length, no one can remain in a natural body to re-inhabit the earth after Christ returns. You have the elect, the reprobate, the sheep and the goats. You have the wheat and the tares all separated. That occurs when Christ comes back. There are no people in natural bodies who can go on into the earth and repopulate it. It's a biblical impossibility. Luke says we'll be like the angels in heaven. There is no marriage or given in marriage. Why? We're children of the resurrection. So if you're premillennial, you'll have to bear that cross as well. People in natural bodies on the earth, and you have to explain how they get there. At the end of the thousand years, you have to explain what happens when they all fall and revolt against Christ. That just doesn't work. So the new heaven, the new earth appear at the time of final judgment. Revelation 21 follows the scene in Revelation 20, 11 to 15, which is a final judgment in connection with John seeing a new heaven and a new earth. We also need to say again that Christ's second advent is the great hope of the New Testament, not an earthly millennium, nor improved earthly conditions. That's just not part of biblical expectation. The second coming is called the blessed hope. Why? It is the reception of all the promises God has made to his people. Not some of them, all of them. And the early church, we know, prayed for this great event. Paul closes out his Corinthian epistle, chapter 16, verse 22, Maranatha, an Aramaic expression meaning Lord come. So the early church expected, not a golden age, 
not Christ's return to set up a millennium. They expected Christ's return, in which we'd find the resurrection, the judgment, and a new heaven and a new earth. And even the book of Revelation points in that direction in its closing benediction. He who testifies to these things, surely I am coming soon. John's closing words, amen. Come, Lord Jesus, to set up your millennial kingdom. Nope. Come, Lord Jesus. We have covered significant ground so far, signs which apply in the apostolic age, signs which characterize the entire interadvental age, and those signs which tell us that the coming of the Lord is rapidly drawing near. After a short break, we'll continue to look at popular signs and expectations which are actually not found in the Bible, and then we'll wrap up with a discussion of my take on future things. Thanks again to those of you who have recommended the Blessed Hope Podcast to your friends and church folk. We are coming up on a significant milestone in terms of downloads, so thank you for spreading the word. It works. Our audience for a really niche podcast is steadily growing, and it does help people find the Blessed Hope Podcast if you leave a five-star review and add your comments. So thank you so much to those of you who have done this. It really, really helps. Show notes for this and all past episodes of the Blessed Up Podcast are available at the Riddle blog. That's kimriddlebarger.com. One word, lowercase, kimriddlebarger.com. If you look under the Blessed Up Podcast tab, you'll find the show notes for this episode, links to additional resources, and access to all the prior Blessed Hope episodes. Season 1 on Galatians. Season 2 on Paul's Thessalonian Letters, we've referred to that series a lot in this episode. And you'll find previous episodes in this series, The Future. All of this is under the On Millennialism tab. And if you scroll down, you'll find a number of essays on matters discussed in this episode, such as the 70th week of Daniel, Isaiah 65, and the New Creation, and problems of premillennialism, and so on. So be sure to go to the Riddle blog and check out the On Millennialism tab Scroll down and look at through the stuff that's there. You might find something of interest. You might also enjoy my musings in which I discuss various books. I offer links to what I think might be of interest to readers of the Riddle blog and listeners to this pod. And we have a bit of fun of the dad joke variety. So check out my musings. I have now linked them together for the last few. So you can work from the newest edition back if that's of interest to you. And so with that, It's back to our discussion of the signs which are not signs as we take up the events of AD 70 and the return of Israel to their ancient homeland before we conclude with some thoughts on what the future might hold for Christians in America. As you recall, before we took our break, we were looking at things that people consider to be signs of the end that are not really signs of the end. The fourth one of these are that events of AD 70 are somehow tied to the second advent, the view we call preterism. Preterism in all its forms fail because the second coming is everywhere spoken of as universal and cosmic. 
not localized to Jerusalem. And we know this in Matthew 24, verses 30 through 31, Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, and Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. That said, the events of A.D. 70 do mark the end of the Jewish age, but not the end of this present age. That ends when Christ comes back. The events associated with A.D. 70 are horrible. The desolation of Israel is a tragic thing. It's the meeting out of the covenant curse, but it's not the eschatological parousia. Christ's judgment upon Israel is not a return. It is not the parousia. And if true, then, if it were, how many comings would there be? There'd be the first advent, there'd be his coming in AD 70, and his return again at the end of the age. So there'd be three comings. Some will contend that, well, that's really not a coming. Then if it's really not a coming, then he didn't come in AD 70. So, so there are a lot of issues raised by the preterist position. In several passages, Jesus speaks of his coming as prior to AD 70. We have Matthew 10, 22 through 23, Luke 9, 27, and Matthew 16, verses 24 to 28. We'll go through some of those momentarily. In Luke's gospel, the context for the saying, Jesus is saying, but I tell you truly, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. That's the cost of taking up one's cross and following Jesus. And the same is true in the gospel parallels. Mark 8, 34 through 9, 1 and Matthew 16, verses 24 to 28. In this saying, Jesus states that some, not all of his disciples, would die before the kingdom of God comes. Or, as we read in Matthew 16, 28, his kingdom comes. The point is that this group, the some, will see something, the kingdom coming in power, before they die. And I don't think we want to read anything more into that passage than, than simply that. Now, while it's not incidental that the saying occurs before the transfiguration, it can't be fulfilled by the transfiguration since Jesus speaks of the likelihood that some, but not all of those to whom he's speaking, would die before his words come to pass. The transfiguration doesn't fit with that. But that being said, the transfiguration is one of the first glimpses we get of what it means for the kingdom to come in power when Jesus appears in glory. So there can be no doubt, then, that Jesus is speaking of things yet to come. His resurrection and Pentecost, things that amount to his own vindication, that all of his suffering is going to give way to his glorious vindication, and so too, then, will the suffering of all those who follow him. Now, as D.A. Carson once pointed out, it's vital that we understand that the kingdom comes in stages. The solution to the question raised by preterists may be as simple as the fact that the transfiguration is the first of a number of events which occur in the lifetime of the twelve, which reveal the power of the kingdom and God's judgment in the form of covenant curses upon disobedient Israel. This would include the cosmic signs which accompany our Lord's death, including the temple veil being torn from top to bottom as we mentioned, the resurrection, the ascension, and then Pentecost, along with the rapid growth of the church and the gospel spreading among the Gentiles. And so while the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in AD 70 is surely an indication that a horrible time of desolation has come upon Israel and is a manifestation of God's glory and judgment in the forms of covenant curse, this event points ahead to final judgment at the end of the age, 
just as Jesus follows his prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem with cosmic signs that announce that just as it was in the days of Noah, so too judgment will come upon the whole world. So the last of the things that people take to be a sign that may not be a sign is the return of Israel to Palestine, to its ancient homeland. Now, one interpreted problem we all millenarians have to face is the fact that the nation of Israel presently exists in its ancient land, which is a remarkable event with every appearance of the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy, granted. And although there is no necessary connection between the birth of the modern nation of Israel and the truth or falsity of amillennialism, as you've seen throughout these lectures, Indeed, some amillenarians see a future role for Israel, and some do not. I do see a future role. Most of my brethren don't. Therefore, the birth of Israel is seen by many as a powerful argument against the amillennial interpretation. Now, part of the reason this is an issue is because two of the leading proponents of the so-called Dutch school of amillenarians from a previous generation, Billy Burkhoff and Herman Bovink, they both argued that one of the sure signs that dispensationalism was false was the dispensationalist assertion that Israel would become a nation again. And so when Louis Burkhoff completed his venerable systematic theology in 1939, the restoration of Israel looked like an impossibility. Burkhoff could not have foreseen the events of World War II, the Holocaust, and the formation of the nation of Israel in 1948, and he really overstated his case, so did Bobbing. But according to dispensationalists, on the other hand, the return of the Jews to their ancient homeland confirmed the dispensational reading of biblical prophecy, as well as refuting to their thinking the amillennial view that the Abrahamic covenant is already fulfilled in Christ. So what do we say? Well, the return of Israel to the land is remarkable. But it's not part of the Sinaitic nor the Abrahamic Covenant, which have been fulfilled by Christ. Paul is pretty clear in Galatians 3, 7-9, Know then that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed, that is, the salvation of the Gentiles. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Then, as we'll discuss next time in Romans 11, the Jews are grafted back into the righteous root before the end, and that righteous root is either reference to Christ or to the Abrahamic covenant. Now, under the Sinaitic covenant and the blessing-curse principle, the land of promise was contingent upon national obedience. Israel was not obedient and was cast from the land. So are we to believe that the covenant curse is going to be overturned, that Israel's disobedience is going to be somehow fixed in a way that allows Israel to gain the land again? That involves a redemptive historical shift that's really difficult to see. The biggest problem for dispensationalists is that Paul universalizes the land promise in Romans 4.13. He says the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be the heir of the world, not just that chunk of ground in Palestine, but now the kingdom of God spreads from a geographic boundary, Israel, to the ends of the earth. That didn't come through the law, Paul says, but through the righteousness of faith. 
So the disciples universalized the localized land promise to the ends of the earth. That doesn't fit with dispensationalism, and that's how we as Reformed Christians, I think, would answer that objection. But pink elephant remains, and I would think that the reason why Israel's back in the land, just an opinion, would be a wonderful providential means to facilitate the conversion of the Jews before the time of the end. Strictly opinion, can't prove it. I think that fits that case. Now, I'm really thankful Israel's a parliamentary government. It's an ally. It's a dependable trading partner. And I do expect the conversion of huge numbers of ethnic Jews to Christianity in the days before the end. But how far off is this? No one knows. I don't know. But I would take the mass conversion of Jews to faith in Jesus Christ to be a very clear sign that the end is drawing near. Well, that brings us in to our final discussion. People ask me all the time, what's my take? So, if you ask for it, here's my take. That said, these are just my observations, my speculation. I'm not saying this is going to happen. I'm not making predictions. So, take from what follows what you will. I want to start with one thing that would change the entire course of American history. And that is losing a war. Losing a war would be catastrophic to the American psyche. It would change everything about the course of American life. So as we enter the end of the age, we wonder, how could these things accelerate? How could these things happen? Well, one way they could is the loss of a war. Suppose, for example, we get into it with China over the South China Sea, and we don't do well. We lose. Well, we're not going to be invaded by China, but the Chinese would gain hegemony over the entire trading belt of Southeast Asia, the Straits of Malacca, the Straits of Formosa, that impacts Japan, Korea, the Philippines, Manila, Singapore. It would be a huge thing. It would change American life totally. And the shame of losing a war would be something that would change all of American life. I don't know if that's going to happen. I'm not predicting it. But that's one thing or something like it that could change everything in a relatively short period of time. So just file that away as, as a possibility to bring to pass the kinds of things that we worry about. The second thing we have to be really careful to watch is militant Islam. Now, much of what's predicated in the book of Revelation about the beast could be attributed to the Islamic Mahdi or the Islamic Messiah, who is very much like the Christian Antichrist. And the, the parallels are really striking. There are folks who write in this field. It's been a while since I've looked at this carefully. But it made a big impression on me at the time that the Islamic Mahdi could be very much like the biblical Antichrist. So file that away. The other reason why that matters is Islam's integration of the mosque and the Quran with culture, coupled to any rejection of a two-kingdom sort of idea, where we keep church and state distinct, we keep the kingdom of Christ distinct from the civil kingdom. If you don't have that distinction, you can very quickly have a beast-like state. Unlike Christianity, Islam is a culture. It comes with the Islamic State that enforces religious duties and obligations of its citizens. We see this in Muslims set up Sharia law courts. Those courts are administered by clerics in the mosque, and they pop up in places where Muslims live in the West. They'll set up a subterranean Sharia law court and never bother to engage the, the courts that are already existing. Now, I know Islam often peaceably coexists with other religions. I think 
Islam's history is that generally they've gotten along with their non-Muslim neighbors. But Islam sees as a goal the conversion of the West, as well as the whole world. And unlike Westerners, Muslims often operate on the long road to domination. It's like Chairman Mao's 100-year marathon. They're not for the long haul. We're not. So that's one thing to keep in the back of our minds, the rise of militant Islam. A third thing to consider is the rise of civil religion. Now, again, the Greco-Roman model, especially with the Romans, is that all religion's good and tolerable, provided one does not claim exclusive truth and keeps the Roman deities at the center. You can keep your deities as long as our deities get the highest hill in the city to build the temple. That sort of thing was characteristic of much of American religion until the last 10 years or so. Well, what do you mean by American civil religion? Well, you have the invocation of a generic god, not the triune god of the Bible, but you have the generic god show up in political speeches and on public monuments. You have a second sign of civil religion is the quotation of religious texts on public occasions by political leaders. Anybody who knows me knows I was a big fan of Ronald Reagan. But in the Challenger disaster, Ronald Reagan put all those astronauts in heaven when he said they touched the face of God. Uh, To confuse the religious sort of justification of sinners with, well, they must be doing God's work because they were American astronauts, that's the kind of thing we worry about there. A third thing, we have a veneration of past political leaders and the use of their lives to teach moral ideals. Honest Abe Lincoln never told a lie, that sort of thing. This one's more difficult. We have the veneration of veterans and casualties of a nation's war. Now, heroism is an important national sentiment, but heroism doesn't earn the fall in a place in heaven. So when Americans die in a war, oftentimes the politicians assign them a place in heaven because they fought for the right side. Nothing moves me more than to walk through Arlington National Cemetery I get the importance of patriotism and honoring the heroic dead. I'm a history buff. I get that. But on the other hand, we can't put people in heaven because they fought for our country. That's my concern. We also have religious gatherings that are called by political leaders. The worst offense in my lifetime was the uh, religious service in the National Cathedral. I didn't know we had such a thing, really, after 9-11. And President Bush gave a very wonderful speech, but it was laced with religious imagery, and he invited every conceivable cleric known to mankind. I don't know how many different religious uniforms were present up there, but in the midst of all these different religious leaders stood Billy Graham. And Bush's speech would have been very appropriate had he stripped out a couple of the religious references to Islam as a religion of peace and given that speech in the well of the Congress. It was a perfectly appropriate speech for that venue. But to have a national cathedral and essentially send the symbolism to the entire nation that all religions are good and have their value and maybe therefore true and that this cleric has the same public reputation as that cleric because they're clerics, that to me is a real confusion of the kingdoms. It it creates a sort of civil religion that makes it difficult to say Christianity is wrong because it's so vague, but also you can't say Christianity is true because everyone else is present. So that, I think, is a real mess. And civil religion has characterized much of American life. Since the Civil War, American civil religion has been the principal rival to historic evangelical faith, confessional Protestantism. It's especially problematic when patriotism, which I think to be a virtue, becomes nationalism. 
Christian, nationalism is the idea that we have a Christian prince, a Christian king, a Christian president. Therefore, God is on our side, and our political purposes as a nation are his. But civil religion is also highly vulnerable to secularization, which we are witnessing the last 10 years or so. The thing to watch for is a militant secularism and the flip side of the coin, which is a renewed paganism. Religion is the supposed source of warfare and strife, and therefore you could imagine an end times situation in which religion should be abolished from the public square because it's divisive, or else made to coexist with others as in ancient Rome. You can't say your religion's true. You can practice it, but you can't preach it. You can't evangelize. You can't insist that others believe it as well. Keep your mouth shut, that sort of thing. Underlying that is that revealed religion, Christianity especially, limits human sexual activity to marriage. But pagan religions welcome almost all sexual activity with very few boundaries. Christianity is to be opposed by these groups because it attaches moral consequences to sexual acts outside of the marital relationship and even dares to call them sinful. And so secularism treats sex as a pleasurable body function without any moral consequence, provided the willingness of your partner or partners. Paganism has always been amenable to libertine sexual behavior because it's usually tied to fertility rights or to the preservation of the clan or union with the divine or a whole bunch of other things. Sadism, which includes fascism, the Leninist Trotsky ideology, Maoism, and so on, is rapidly pushing civil religion off the public square because civil religion is pretty wimpy. Much of American political tribalism on the populist side echoes proto-fascism, and fascism, as you know, is where everything serves the interests of the state and its leader. We see this with demagogic political people popping up all over the landscape in this country and in others. While on the Leninite Trotsky side, we seek to eliminate religion altogether and tear down tradition and institution, anything that dares challenge the ideology, that's on the horizon. We could exist as Christians in our churches, even with that being the political situation which we operate, but that does change the game remarkably, and we should be aware that this is a real threat to us. So in my opinion, here's what I think might happen. If we lose a war, everything changes. I don't know if we will. We're still the strongest military on earth, but the decline in the military is evident and noticeable. File that away. More likely is that America's national debt could bring about an unprecedented crisis. It would weaken our national resolve. We'd have a depleted and demoralized military. We'd have increasing decay in daily life if such a thing were possible. So America might remain a world power, but not possess any superpower status, we'd be like Great Britain or France or some of these other large countries that have had glorious military heritages, but not one currently. The problem with economic woes is they pave the way for more demagogic leaders on the left and on the right. And people we know will surrender freedom and rights for free stuff and for protection. The result, the American dream, and personal freedoms vanish. So statism is a constant and serious threat to Christians, especially if we are approaching the final days, especially if the signs of the end begin to take off. Statism is a constant and serious threat. 
So barring a revival, which is always possible, American Christianity, both progressive left, old the old Protestant establishment, and evangelicalism, to the degree to which it becomes politicized, they will continue to crater in terms of numbers and influence. Confessional Protestants, five sola evangelicals, committed Roman Catholics, and a few others will remain and go about their business if a bit under the radar like Jews did in the Pale or in Eastern Europe after the Diaspora until the Lord returns. And we may find ourselves as a persecuted minority. It's a real possibility. Now, as far as woke influences, well, they'll abate to some degree. They may take a, a more pernicious form, but they'll abate because they're contrary to creation. And they're just plain stupid on their face. So what we have to consider is the genie of the sexual revolution is out of the bottle and not going back in anytime soon. Although it's possible we could have a very rigid Victorian moralism as a consequence of burned out libertines. We're already starting to see that in terms of younger folk not engaging in sexual relations and not marrying. So you may see a blowback to the woke movements and the pornography in the fact that people become celibate in an, in an unhealthy way, which would a healthy way to be married and family. So a question I have in my mind, is the great apostasy a process or is it an event? The success and the missionary endeavor and growth of Christianity in the two-thirds world seems to indicate that a universal apostasy is not yet. Although... For the first time in my life, I may be witnessing its beginning. I don't know. But I can end with this. The most important thing to remember is that the Lord's return will come in God's due time. And if I'm right, conditions will be such that no more signs are going to be needed because we'll get to the point that unless the Lord returns, we are doomed. But he will return, and that's my hope, the blessed hope. So, as we wrap up, a lengthy episode where we've covered a lot of things and touched on a lot of subjects. What do we say? The first thing we say is the signs do not tell us when, but that the Lord will return. The second thing we have to say is scripture must be allowed to interpret scripture. Current events cannot tell us what the Bible means. We can't come to a conclusion about a biblical passage based on current events. What we can say is that how does that event fit in light of the general signs of the end. That we can do. Third point, the Bible does not predict specific events. It doesn't tell us who the Antichrist is going to be. It doesn't tell us about particular wars or particular famines or particular earthquakes. But it does tell us to expect all these things and worse because these things are the characteristic of this age. These are the birth pains as we await the arrival of the age to come. Fourth, Nobody knows the day or the hour of the Lord's return. And if anybody claims otherwise, they're a liar or they're deceived. They're a kook, a crackpot, or a deceiver. No one knows the day or the, or the hour of the Lord's return. Fifth, the takeaway, the big takeaway here, is we're to do as the Lord commands. And that is endeavor to fulfill the Great Commission until Jesus returns. Jesus said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And finally, signs of the end tell us, we are eagerly to keep watch and pray for the Lord's return. Paul closed out his Corinthian letter with the Aramaic expression, Maranatha, Lord come. That ought to be our prayer. The early church prayed for that event, and so should we. And then I leave you with the final benediction from Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And I say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We've spent a fair bit of time considering the signs of the end and discussing what our expectations should be for the future. Next time, look for a follow-up episode to the future. We'll look at the question of Israel in the last days. What does the future hold for Israel? And we'll go through Romans chapter 9 through Romans chapter 11. And so until next time, Maranatha, the Lord come.